Coming up on this week's episode of Destination Linux, we have an interview with Dan Johansson of Manjaro Arm. We're also going to talk about some new AMD machines that are coming out, some laptops from Tuxedo and Slimbook with the KDE Slimbook. We're also going to talk about bug reporting fragmentation and is there a way to solve the bug reporting issues that exist in, well, all computing projects and everything. We're also going to talk about a beta release of TuxCart because we just love yeah. open source games because it is just an amazing thing. And also, community feedback. We're going to be covering that as well as our tips and tricks and software picks all of this and so much more coming up right now on destination linux welcome to destination linux with the road going to somewhere and a penguin boom and a penguin Shows yeah. up. hey tux what's up hey tux what's up <laughs> So, welcome to episode 184 of your number one video-centric Linux podcast. Destination Linux is a show where we give our to- our take on hot topics around the Linux community, give you weekly tips and tricks, and each week we cover a big topic that needs discussion. This week we talked about it. It's going to be bug reporting, which is going to be exciting. So, if you if this is something that you're interested in, be sure to subscribe. And if you want the full video experience, then be sure to subscribe on the DLN YouTube channel or the library channels, and maybe even if you like the multitasking style we also have rss feeds for mp3s that you can subscribe to in your podcast or however you want to do it we're also available in every podcast directory so just go out and search it if you if you need to do that my name is michael and with me today are, the, are my fellow teammates from the 97 98 chicago bulls noah and ryan this is wow. this isn't our last dance though so let's find out what everybody's been up to this week so noah what have you been up to what are you talking about you, you, you just- are you not a basketball player I, no. I was pretty sure we both. I'm pretty so sure we were both. Sure. We were both on the well, Bulls. Like, well, you were I know me and Ryan were on the Bulls, and I was pretty I was sure you were. Linux this week. So uh, I guess you'll have to talk about basketball. I'll just talk about Element because that's what I'm excited about this okay, week. Okay, Element cool, cool. is out and uh, has replaced Riot. If now, if you're not, if you haven't been following this, Riot X was the development client. It was the bleeding edge client. You got all the cool new features. And actually, in my experience, Riot X actually worked a lot better than Riot.im. Well, that's all changed now because Element is the replacement for uh, Riot.im. It is It follows a successful code base of Riot X and is absolutely fantastic. They've made a, a number of really great improvements, including previewing of messages inside of the client, um, as well as uh, the ability to adjust font sizes. And um, some other minor, uh, some other minor tweaks. They've they've adjusted the the color of the UI to make things a little bit more readable and a little bit more approachable. There's also a new minimized um, stylistic way of presenting the chat where it presents it like old school IRC. So instead of having the modern way where you have like the the the, the person that's talking their name and then their message, and the person that's talking and then their message, it does the person talking and then a colon and then their message, what, and everything no is a new. Darn. Yeah, no bubbles. Right, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, at first I was like, oh, I don't want to do that. But bubbles. honestly, what, what makes it nice is you can then close the client and just have like maybe two or three inches of it up the very top of your screen. And then the chat just kind of scrolls and it's just there all day. So I've actually been really enjoying that. But yeah, if you haven't done so, I highly encourage you to install Element. I understand that there is some delays in getting uh, Element published to the Snap Store. So right now what you have to do is go to uh, element.io and follow their guide for adding a PPA to get uh, Element installed, but it's definitely worth doing so. Very happy with the new update to Element. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm glad that they've done a lot of improvements to the overall experience and also no longer call it Riot. That's that's a good decision. So, Ryan, what's been happening in your week? Well, for those who can see the video, I'll show you what's been happening in my world. Look at it. Look at it. Now respect it. 
This is the System 76 Lemur Pro that's in my hands here. Very lightweight, battery-friendly laptop that I've been playing around with this week and making me fall in love as if I didn't need to fall in love more with Pop! OS because their Pop! Shell Tiling Manager is pure freaking fire. I'm just telling you right now, those who like tiling window managers, what they've been able to do with a GUI tiling manager in GNOME is quite amazing, I think. It at least fits all the needs that I have for a tiling manager. All my windows right now across two 2K screens, completely tiled perfectly the way I want it. So big shout out to System76, and we'll be taking a look in future videos on my channel of the Lemur Pro and how it compares with some of the other laptops I've been playing with recently. So there Very you go. awesome. Can, can, I, can I ask what the cost was? Well, the cost was I went on eBay and found this here, which is their uh, version from last year, the Lemp 9, for I think $800 was what it ended up going for in total, which is not bad. That's pretty good. Yeah, for sure. So, Michael, what have you been up to this week? Well, actually, I wanted to talk about what happened with the community this week because we have we have this website that is fantastic. If you haven't heard of it, it's called Front Page Linux. It is a website you can go to frontpagelinux.com where people you can find articles, tutorials, videos, all kinds of stuff, and it's also con- community contributed. So m- many of the articles are created by people who are just part of the community and have wanted to contribute to the website, which is amazing thing. And if you want to do that, feel free to do so. You can go to frontpagelinux.com to find out more about how to do that. But and something something else that happened this week was that we had one of the community members decide to create an app an android app so we have an app for that front page linux wow. so that is just awesome they just came to me and said hey i was i'm learning android apps and i wanted to make an app for the front page linux website is that cool with you and i was like yeah it is that's awesome thank you and then it it's actually in the play store right now so if you want to go ahead and get it you can just go to the play store on your phone and install it and it is pretty awesome so i wanted to thank uh, michael stacks for doing that and it's just it's just super awesome. So thank you. Thank well, we you always much. say we have the greatest community in the world, and then they go and prove it. Now, now there's no yeah. disputing it at all. <laughs> they go and we prove and it. Created yep. an app that is just so awesome. Thank you so much for doing that. And I downloaded said app, and it's really good, man. Oh yeah, it's it's quite good. And he's also very receptive to some like inputs and stuff like that. Because I was like, hey, could you tweak this one thing? Is like uh, the whole perfectionism thing. I was like, hey, could you tweak this one thing? And he's like, yeah, absolutely. And then he was like, hey, uh, while I was making this, I noticed something about the website. Could you tweak this one thing? I was like, yes, perfect. <laughs> so it became a collaborative effort to improve the website in addition to making the app. So that's it's awesome. So uh, thanks again. No, you're not mysterious. You're really not. That <laughs> gotta stop. It was a good timing because I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and make sure that that is included in the ending of that segment and not explain it whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, <laughs> thank you, <laughs> thank you. This episode of Destination Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized for managing and scaling apps with their easy-to-use intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and so much more. Now, I know there's somebody out there asking, what does that mean? No, I'll tell you what it means. It means that when you work at a company like Speed Technologies and we are going through and we're saying, hey, we don't we want to use, we want to use easy appointments to schedule all of our stuff. And then we want to host our own uh, version of Matrix and we want to use that for our communications backend. And then we want to host OS Ticket and we want all of this stuff to work together and tie together, but we need it to be secure and we kind of need it to be like an online 
online office, but not really accessible to the rest of the world, but accessible to us. You know what DigitalOcean does? DigitalOcean makes that happen. DigitalOcean has become our office in the cloud. Their virtual private networking allows us to create a little tiny network inside of DigitalOcean that we can then VPN into. And then our office sits on DigitalOcean server. You know what DigitalOcean was? The first company that had all SSDs. They dug in full force because they knew that was going to be the future. When there's new container technology, when there's new virtualization technology, DigitalOcean is on top of that. And it's because of that, their their constant commitment to container and virtualization technology is why they have uh, the latest features available. You know what else they do? They give you money. And they want to give you money by going to do.co slash deal. And they're going to give you one hundred dollars. That's a lot of servers that you can buy, especially when they start at five bucks a month. Uh, you can use it for that. You can use it for a bunch of servers at $5 a month, or you can do what I do and use it towards one really powerful server and see what you can make those puppies do. Again, you can just get started with that $100 credit by going to do.co slash DLN and a huge thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring Destination Linux. In our community feedback this week, David writes us to say, I've been using Linux for almost 20 years. I started with Red Hat and quickly moved away because I could not stand GNOME 1 and had issues with RPM dependencies. It is much better now, but at the time, it was a serious problem. I moved from Gen 2 to Arch. I still felt like I needed the full control, but compiling from source was no longer necessary. He then goes on to talk about all the other distros that he hopped to, including Pop! OS and things, but had random issues with touchscreen and then KDE Neon and then Ubuntu LTS, and then basically concluded to say, I realize that I like to have the newest versions of my applications, but I do not necessarily need the newest version of the core components like the kernel. Snaps take the place of needing the newest application. We'll see when GNOME 3.38 gets released, if they get to the itch, or if he gets the itch to move on. I do not foresee myself sticking with the LTS, but I may stay with the six-month release cycle, David. So Appreciate it, David. I think what he's saying here is, hey, sometimes you need a rolling release, sometimes you don't. And he mentioned being on older hardware. So yeah, in that case, probably not as necessary. Though I will tell you on later kernel releases, even with older hardware, a lot of speed and enablement does take place in there. So you still could be missing out on some things, but certainly there is a case to be made for LTS. Absolutely. But I don't think that's really the fight in Linux right now. I think right. LTS has plenty of people making a case for it. I think mm -hmm. where there is a fight that needs to happen is there's not enough people making the case for why a rolling release model, not specifically the way Arch does it and not specifically the way anybody else does it, but the ability to have the latest and greatest hardware enablement uh, within a distro is also necessary to have in the Linux ecosystem, I think is the big battle. Yeah, I think the idea that having the rolling release and the LTS, like... And an LTS model is a one on one end of the, the spectrum, and then you have a rolling release on another end of the spectrum, and we can have somewhere in the middle. That's the part that's missing. So, like, if the just a, the idea I think would be the best option is an LTS that has the value of the applications rolling with like snaps and flat packs and that kind of thing in conjunction with a hardware enablement stack that is kept up to date frequently, meaning that you have the value of getting those updates to the hardware support, but also not everything has to roll because not everything needs to. Yep, I'd agree. There's somewhere in between that's the answer. The thing I feel like is left out of the discussion when we're talking about rolling versus static distros is the way that software goes about being created and how it's tested again. So in principle, I agree. When something new comes out, a new piece of hardware comes out, we should have those uh, that the, the software support to support that hardware. That part I agree with. The part that I disagree with is when you have 
software A that uses, you know, this library stack and these files and this version of whatever Java or you know, whatever thing it needs. And then you have this program that needs an entirely separate thing. And this thing has no concept of this thing. How do we square that? And it seems like the best approach is the way that Red Hat is dealing with this in their streams, where you can choose how fast you want packages to come down based on how uh, uh, on what that server is doing, then on top of that, you're at, then on top of that is where your application sits. And so you can have a very stable base that works and 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 have bleeding in packages, or you can do the opposite way around. You can say, hey, I, I want the I want the rolling base. I want as fast as possible. I want to stay up to date. And then, but this package, I just want to stay static. Particularly if we start utilizing containers to do that, that's the part where I think rolling falls down. So I I feel like there's probably something there's like a middle ground in where we the operating system itself is rolling but all of the packages are contained inside of snaps or flat packs and so we don't notice the fact that the the underlying system is changing frequently yeah i think there is an answer you know i used to be go full rolling uh, all the way because i see the advantages of it not only for older hardware but newer but i also started to understand the needs that some people have for the lts if they don't want the software to change while they're doing things on the server and in, in an enterprise environment so i get that too I think there is a hybrid approach, and I agree that the stream sounds like an interesting solution to that mm-hmm. hybrid approach. I just one of the things I think we definitely need is better software for the hardware support out there, and whichever way they decide to accomplish that, I'm just glad it's up for discussion nowadays, whereas it kind of wasn't before, and a lot of people seem to be stuck on this idea that let's just keep everything old, and I, I don't think that progresses Linux forward. Yeah, I think that's a. I think those are both good points, and the stream is an interesting approach. I, ju- I just think that we need to have someone trying to focus on meeting that middle ground because we currently have a lot of work in the on both ends, but not trying to go for that middle. And I look forward to seeing like if the streams can be applied to Fedora or something like that. So we would like to welcome Dan Johansson to the show. Dan is the project lead and co-founder of the Manjaro ARM project. If you've used a Pinebook Pro or a Pinephone now, and really any ARM device with Manjaro, then you are familiar with his work. So in addition to all of this, Dan's day job is setting up IT systems for the blind and visually impaired, which is amazing and all around just great guys. So welcome, Dan, to the show. Thank you. So first of all, let's let's just get started with the the most natural question that first has to be asked is, how did you get started into Linux? I first started with Linux when I was getting my education back in 2001 or 2002, where I started setting up a Red Hat server for a firewall. So that was back when Red Hat 6. So that was all command line. Nice. So what was it about Linux back then that made you decide you're going to stick with it? You set up a Red Hat server, so you made Noah's ha- Noah happy there. What was it that made you go, hey, I'm going to keep going down this path? Well, I didn't stick with it back then. That was gotcha. just for my education, for getting to set up the firewall. Yeah. Uh, I heard about Linux again after a few years with uh, Mandrake. Mandrake. And then everybody. later on again with Ubuntu. Mm-hmm. So when you so when you transitioned, so you first got involved with Red Hat, then you found Mandrake, and it like it just it got more and more reasonable to use. And then when Ubuntu yeah. comes around, you're like, okay, now it's at a position where it's 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 the time it's it's time for me to use it. All right, cool. That's yep. basically the same thing I had almost exactly, except for it was Mandrake and Debian. But like it's it's yeah. a very uh, very similar thing, and uh, the that it's just it's just always to, for me it's always interesting to see how people are getting involved in Linux because. 
that everybody has a different experience and we all have our own different experiences on the show. And Ryan is, is fairly new overall in the thing. So he, he got the benefit of, of joining the Linux ecosystem with already having Ubuntu existing for over a decade. And it's like a different, it's also really interesting to see the different experiences. And I totally get why your, uh, you know, when you started with Red Hat, you wouldn't stick with it because back in the day in the early nineties, it was, uh, well, let's just say it wasn't the best experience to have. So, <laughs> so what led you from there, though, to taking on the world of ARM and focusing on Manjaro? That's an interesting jump there. Yeah, well, I've I used Ubuntu for a couple of years, and uh, and then I thought, well, I I want to try something else. So I looked up a couple of things, and then I heard about Manjaro. So I tried that out and used that for a year or two, and then. Uh, a guy named Josh Crowder started uh, the Manjaro ARM project because he wanted to bring the Manjaro experience to the single board computer world. So, so he did that. And uh, I jumped on as uh, a guy for providing mirrors. So I provided a mirror in my country for his project gotcha. back then. And we started talking through that. And, and then what kind we, of contributions do you do today with the Manjaro ARM? Well, I uh, package software manage the repo and I create the images and manage to, you know, maintain the tools for creating this stuff. Wow. And we could go ahead and just need, we probably need to address this in the terms of like, you know, cause it's going to be probably commonly asked question if we don't. So how involved is Manjaro with Manjaro arm? Are they separate projects? Are they connected together? Is it an official spin or like, wh- how would you describe it? They are, it's a daughter project of the Manjaro project. There are some overlap. Uh, some developers also develop uh, some stuff for ARM, like for example, for example, Philip also does uh, some of the Fush development that's happening right now for the phone. Okay. And uh, we use the infrastructure to host our repo and the website and forums also on theirs. All right. But so we... give us the inside secret here. How is it working with the Manjaro team? Are they mean? Are they happy people? We, we need. They're to know. happy people, as far as I have met them. Yeah. I met them a couple of times at Fostum, so. Very nice. We need to get pretty nice that already. It wasn't a loaded I like question. how Ryan is like, let's get some dirt on this. <laughs> yeah, let's get some dirt going. <laughs> I'd like to ask you a little bit about hardware. Um, obviously, there are a number of different hardware platforms out there. Everything from Raspberry Pis to very specific ARM infrastructure devices built for very specific industry purposes. What kind of hardware do you? Uh, what kind of hardware uh, do you think is the most exciting in Linux right now? I think, for me personally, it's the uh, ARM laptops. So like the Pinebook and the Pinebook Pro right now, and uh, others are bound to come along, I think, especially when the Raspberry Pi and I have eight gigabytes of RAM, it's bound to become a laptop out of that sometime. Mm. Do you think ARM's going to have a major push into the Linux ecosystem? We see big companies like Apple now pushing, obviously, towards an ARM-based architecture. Is this going to help facilitate the push of ARM into the Linux space with hardware, you feel like, or...? I think so. Yeah, I think so. It has a little influence, I think, because when large companies like Apple say we want to work on ARM, then the software companies that want to produce software for Apple, they need to take that into consideration and thus making it easier to run on ARM. You know, it's interesting. uh, For those that have a Pinebook Pro, the Debian, I think, that comes default, that came default with it was okay. And you got a pretty decent experience with it. But when I went to the Manjaro arm, it was like a whole new world opened up of software, the speed. It just seemed so much more 
I, I don't know. It felt like it belonged. This is the operating system that belonged on the Pinebook Pro to begin with. And obviously, I'm a fan of Manjaro to begin with, but it had nothing to do with that even. It just really felt more like a complete ecosystem for this device. Tell me about that. Did you guys just decide, hey, these are the features we want and throw it all in? Or did you have a plan from the beginning to really make this thing sing for the Pinebook Pro? What we wanted to do was make it be the best that it could using mainline and upstream software mostly. So what we're doing is we're using the kernel that is pretty in line with mainline. We recently switched to pure mainline kernel, but uh, and also the Panfus driver, which is the GPU driver, which is also from mainline and using mainline Mesa for the uh, for the GPU driver. So is that what helped make it feel snappier? Was you were actually enabling yeah. all of the hardware within the Pinebook? Right off the gate. Yeah, because the Debian used uh, the uh, proprietary blobs for, you know, the Mali driver is proprietary. And that is uh, some 32-bit user land also, which also has something to say about the speed Absolutely. a little bit. And then, of course, the kernel the Debian used was a, an old 4.4 kernel, I think. What ARM-based hardware do you want to see come to Linux in the future that you could like maybe work on for Mandrao ARM? Like, what do you think would be like the most exciting to to come to Linux? I would like to see proper ARM desktops, really. Interesting. You know, where you like, can, a, like a full you can put an desktop. ARM sock into yeah. You can put an ARM uh, sock into a mainboard and expand it with RAM and PCI slots and all that, and just use it as a desktop. Interesting. So we've seen Intel and AMD dabble in the ARM ecosystem, making some variations of single boards and things that haven't really been popular. Do you think that's going to keep the adoption? I mean, obviously they have some investment in kind of staying away from ARM and pushing their own architecture. I mean, who's going to bring that? Who could bring that to the desktop experience in Linux from a CPU manufacturing standpoint? I think Apple's push is actually going to push this a bit forward, making companies like AMD much more inclined to try and get more ARM CPUs out there. Interesting. But a company to to do this, I don't know who would really want to take it on as a desktop uh, SOC. Maybe a Qualcomm or something like that in the future? I don't know. We'll see. I haven't worked much with Qualcomm, so... Yeah. What help do you need in the Manjaro ARM project right now? How can people get involved if they like what they're seeing, if they like what's happening? Um, what can they do to support ARM? Uh, I would mostly say uh, volunteers. Test out the software, report bugs when you find them, and uh, even uh, write documentation. Our documentation is not that great yet, so mm -hmm. all help for that would be welcome. That makes sense. And, and where, where, where do we... people go to get in, involved to do that if they want to help write documentation, for instance? That would probably be the Manjaro Forum. Manjaro Forum? Yeah, that's where we communicate most with our community. So they have nice. they have a special section for the Manjaro Arm on that forum? Yeah. Okay. We do. And then, of course, donations. Always welcome. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. you got to fund it. So, so where can people learn more about Mandraw Arm? Is there an Arm, a Mandraw Arm-based website, or is it like kind of connected to the main website? And how how do you, how would you promote? You want to send people to find out more? We have a section on the uh, proper website on Mandraw.org mm -hmm. where you can download our images and stuff like that. And we have a section on the forum where you can post about Mandraw Arm-specific problems or any other issues you have. We also have our matrix rooms. We have a public one and which I call public, but it's actually just unencrypted. And then we have an encrypted one just for lulls. <laughs> just for we lulls. wanted to try that out. I like it. 
I like it. Yeah. And then uh, we have a Mastodon account as well where nice. people can uh, contact us. Okay. We'll have links to all of that in the show notes for anybody who wants to learn more about Manjaro Arm. And we want to thank you so much for joining us today on the show. We appreciate all the work sure. that you're doing on Manjaro Arm and bringing this project to the, yes, you know, I love this, it. Especially to the, the the things like the Pinebook Pro, where you know when people looked at Pinebook Pro, they're like, "Oh well, this Debian kind of holds back packages and that kind of thing." And it's you know having that value of Manjaro and having the rolling packages and up up to date software and hardware support and all that is really cool that you that y'all did that. So yeah. uh, anyone who has an ARM device, you know, definitely need to check out Manjaro ARM to learn more about it. And uh, again, thanks Dan for coming on the show and all the work sure. you're doing. Thank you. Yeah. We do support most ARM devices out there, I think. Oh, nice. where can people, one last thing, where do people go to donate? Because projects like this, if we want to really see this grow, need that. And um, where, where can people go to send a donation? We have uh, Patreon, we have uh, Kofi, and we have a uh, thing you can do on Open Collective. Very nice. Nice. Which is right, a, so we highly encourage people platform. go out there and check that out and consider donating if you use this project because I think it's very important as big companies are transitioning to ARM that we support this in the Linux ecosystem so we don't fall behind and the work that you're doing and and the team there on Majora ARM is just it's first class. It's absolutely amazing and I appreciate everything you're doing. Thank you. Lots of people have been looking for the new AMD based laptops. This is something that we've seen uh, with both Lenovo, we've seen it with Dell, and now it's making its way into the, the niche laptop sp space. And one of the first companies to come out with this is Tuxedo, and they are coming out with the Tuxedo Pulse 15. Now, this features an eight core AMD Ryzen 7 4800H or the six core AMD Ryzen 7 4600H. Um, it contains a 90 watt. A 91 watt lithium polymer battery, uh, magnesium chassis, elegant, robust design, less than 1.5 uh, kilograms. Somebody do the calculation, find out what pounds, what, what that is in pounds. I can, I can make something of that. <laughs> Dual channel RAM, card reader, LED backlight display, uh, and a 15 inch 1080p display. Now, uh, there are other companies that are making these kinds of laptops and using some of the same ODM. We'll get to those in a little bit. But I think what's important here is that we are continuing to provide competition inside of the laptop space, not only uh, just for different manufacturers making the laptops, but now we're actually starting to leverage uh, some of these new processor technologies. And so whereas Ryan has been excited for many years uh, on the desktop and, and what Ryzen's been able to do for the desktop, we're now entering the age where this is going to start to happen in laptops. And I think what you're finding is very positive uh, reception for these machines that have come out. The AMD laptops that I have seen that have been released, again, by Lenovo, by Dell, have had really good results. And so we have a, a very high expectation that, that laptops like the tall the Tuxedo Pulse 15 will be very well received. The other thing is, as I was digging into this a little bit this morning, interestingly, though, it's still going to lack that Thunderbolt connection because I, I believe it's a licensing issue um, with Intel and, and Apple. So it, it'll have Type-C. You'll be able to charge over Type-C, uh, but you won't be able to connect to your Thunderbolt docking station. That's something that we're either going to see down the road uh, as Intel opens that spec or with um, the next USB, uh, I believe it's USB 4, uh, the standard as, as that People should out. be listening to Hardware Addicts because the one coming up this week is going to give you the full rundown in history of Thunderbolt 3, Thunderbolt 4, USB 3, USB 4, and how all that licensing and mess and everything is working out in there. But I agree with you. I think that's one thing missing. I am really happy to see a lot of these laptops focus on some key elements that were missing in these lines prior, 
one of them being the magnesium chassis, which definitely just really makes them feel premium. It also gives them that hardiness as far as not having the flex in the keyboard and just feeling overall like a cheap laptop, like many plastic laptops do. Although a lot of people like to use the plastic for the lightweight. I just think it feels more premium to have that magnesium chassis there. Also the smaller bezel. This is such a, it's almost an immediate giveaway to a cheap (laughs) laptop. If it has a one inch thick bezel going all around the screen and you can see with these later laptops, they now have the smaller bezel going around Mm -hmm. much like what Dell did with the infinity edge, which I'm telling you as strange as it sounds, gives you a better experience in your viewing when you don't have the big bezel there. It's weird. I know, but maybe you're just spoiled with it. Maybe you're infinity edge screen. I was like, Oh my gosh, I feel immersed in the picture versus staring at a one inch black border going around it. It just makes a big difference there. Uh, Slimbook obviously has their KDE Slimbook, which seems to be near identical to the tuxedo, maybe some slight changes, maybe some different tweaks they put under the scenes when they're working with Clevo. But one of the things that made me really excited here was System76 engineer tweeting, I have seen the light of the great Lisa Sue, which I agree. <laughs> I love Lisa Sue, so you automatically got my attention. And he writes, uh, Jeremy Soller, today begins the journey to port core boot to the Renault and Matisse. So see you on the other side. So this gives me the idea that System76 is also looking into potentially, I'm hoping, having an AMD laptop based here in the future as well and having core boot put onto it, which would be pure fire. Yeah. That sounds that sounds awesome. Like uh, the, the the stuff that Tuxedo is doing is really cool, and I also like the like the Slim Book. Uh, you know, they're working with KDE to make this kind of thing. I, I I'm glad that they're doing this sort of stuff, and I do think that overall it's it's already awesome. Like what they're doing, but the the fact that System seventy six is so you know focused on having like the core boot aspects to it as well, just it makes me even more excited. You know, just because I'm I can't I can't I'm so excited that all these different companies are doing this effort in making sure that we have this ability to get AMD laptops because it has been a very long time to get a genuine laptop processor from AMD. And because there is some laptops you can find that have desktop lap desktop CPUs inside of those laptops. And that's right. not exactly the same thing. So it's really exciting to see all these different companies are doing it. And I also like the fact that Tuxedo lets you have a Klingon keyboard set if you want to, for some reason. That's pretty good. Yeah, you gotta <laughs> love that. And and I will I want to tell people this too. The you know, one of the big differentiators here with an AMD CPU, especially this fourth gen, is that Vega class GPU that's inside. This is no sleeper here. This is not one of those things where you're like, oh, you only have the Intel embedded GPU, which have gotten better too, by the way. But I'm talking, you can do some really intense, good gaming, medium settings, sometimes high settings, depending on the game, but get great framework, uh, great frame rates out of these Vega embedded GPUs here. They're absolutely fire. In fact, in the Intel Nook I'm on right now, it has an embedded Vega. And I was showing people the Tomb Raider benchmarks that were coming out of this thing. I couldn't believe it. And because this particular one in here, the Vega M has the HBM2 memory that's inside the more expensive Radeon 7 lineup as well. I mean, they, they really... People are going to have a completely different experience on their laptop with this AMD lineup. I get why it's taken so long. It costs a lot of money to recreate manufacturing to allow you to create these laptops out there. And they were basically a lot of 
manufacturers probably waiting saying, is this AMD thing going to last? Are they going to remain on the top? Does Intel have this big 10 nanometer, seven nanometer bomb that's about to hit? So uh, the answer is no, they don't. It keeps getting delayed. <laughs> so now they're all starting to finally release these AMD laptops and I couldn't be happier about it. Yeah, it's awesome. I'm I'm super excited about it. I When I switched to AMD because Ryan convinced me to do so, I have never had a better experience on computing and also never better experience in Linux. Just having everything. Gosh, remember just, all those people chatting like, yeah. oh, Ryan, you like AMD. They're going to be nothing. Intel's going to kill them. Do you remember all that? All those people who wrote that in Telegram? I, I do. I do yeah. remember that happening a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it really didn't pan out for you all too well. Stick with me, kid. <laughs> Ryan might know a little bit about hardware. Maybe you might want to check out hardware addicts to learn more. So our security advisory this week is brought to you by Bitwarden, and that is to be careful about the extensions you're putting in your browser. Yes, that includes even if you're using Firefox. Extensions are an extremely powerful tool that can help you block ads, provide easy access to screenshot tools and things like notes and saving pages offline. However, They also open up your machine to privacy and security holes. I keep telling this to people because they'll open their browsers in front of me and have like 80 extensions. They don't, I don't think many people are actually going and looking to see number one, are those extensions, who's creating them? Are they open source? Are you looking at the code? Because you can create a ton of holes through all of those extensions that you're including. I only have a couple of extensions that I have on my machine. And of course, one of those is Bitwarden because that's the best password manager on the planet. But Noah Mm -hmm. and Michael, do you agree extension going crazy on extensions, a danger here? To a degree, yes. I'm going crazy on extensions, yes. And I think that there are many cases where the extensions could be problematic because there's not much effort put into them or they're brand new or that kind of thing. Like trying random things like that could be problematic. I do agree that ultimately you need to pay attention to what you're doing. Also, Hope they try to get it like to, you know you could probably say that it, if you're using Firefox for example you could probably say that the featured things that Firefox is like willing right. to put their name behind are probably okay to go with so and depending on how many you have of those you know there's that benefit there's also like an issue of performance depending on what kind of extensions you're in, installing and setting up so there are some things you need to take consideration of but and I also probably use mo- way more than Ryan would be willing to uh, but. I have, Every I said, time you come over, you're like, I want to add this extension. That no, I like, d- no, that only bad, happened. Michael, go sit on your stool. That didn't happen. Okay, maybe it did happen every time. But yeah. it was there was a couple times where I sent him a message. like, hey, you should check out this extension. He's like, no, I don't want to put that on my browser. Like, But he's like, no, I don't want it. But it's great. No, I don't know. Okay, fine, okay. whatever. <laughs> but fair enough. There are some issues there. Yeah, uh, it's you know, actually re- becoming a huge issue where a lot of security vulnerabilities and things are actually starting to come through the extension. So just be very careful what you're installing. One of the things that I have found very, very useful is when you go to addons.mozilla.org, I don't know the details of this, but I, I can tell you that there are some extensions that Mozilla tracks with uh, for security vulnerabilities and then other extensions that they don't. The way I know that is I went to install a uh, uh, an extension of mine, and right in the in the Firefox browser, right when the, in the add-ons, it said right on the on addons.mozilla.org, hey, this extension is not being tracked, so make sure you trust the source before you install it. Whereas mm-hmm. Bitwarden, for example, you don't get that message. In addition to that, when you click on the reviews, you can see the three thousand twelve uh, five star reviews or the two hundred and fifty four four star reviews of people 
people saying, hey, this Bitwarden extension is working very well. It's very secure. It doesn't do anything that I don't want. You know, so, so when when these extensions start to do bad things, somebody usually notices and you can usually figure that out if you just spend a little time and read through the reviews. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so glad you brought up Bitwarden because they were the sponsor of the segment and a sponsor of Destination Linux Network. Look, uh, I could speak from the heart from this because this is a service that I used well before they ever became a sponsor. I was a LastPass user. And then Michael actually showed me the light. He's like, why are you using LastPass, you noob? You should check out Bitwarden. And I was like, but I've got my whole infrastructure in LastPass. I don't want to move. And he's like, let me show you the features. And I was like, dang it, I have to move. And so I've been with Bitwarden ever since. It's my absolute favorite password manager on the planet. It is completely open source. They also have third party and it's not just being open source, which everybody can view the code and go and audit. They also hire third party entities to go out there, security firms, and make sure that there's nothing else that even all the people who are looking at the code might have missed. In fact, they just did one recently and passed with flying colors. You can go look at the report, completely transparent. You need a, if you're going to have a password manager that you can trust, you're going to need things like that. It needs to be open source, needs to have third-party independent firms actually perform security audits to make sure that what you're putting out there is safe. The great thing is they have all kinds of features for additional lockdown as well. You like to use YubiKeys that we talked about in a prior episode. You can do that with Bitwarden there. It's just amazing. You can even, if you want to, host it yourself. But the thing that you should be doing, without a doubt, is I'm going to tell you this. It costs $10 per year, not per week, per month or anything else, but per year. And you're going to help support this incredible open source project. You're also going to get a gigabyte of encrypted file storage. You're going to get the two-step authentication key options. Like I mentioned, YubiKey, U2F and Duo. You're going to get Vault Health Reports. You're going to get TOTP Authenticator. You're going to get priority customer support and all the free features on top of that. And all you have to do is go to bitwarden.com slash DLN and you can start securing your passwords today and the greatest password manager ever made, Bitwarden. So our big topic this week is we're going to squash some bugs. We're going to talk about how many, how often do you personally, do you open bug reports? I try to do it on a regular basis as I come across bugs. Mm -hmm. But this week, the last couple weeks recently, I've been opening a lot of bug reports and I've been extremely frustrated with the entire process. Like Mm -hmm. I want to punch my beautiful new screen because of the bug reporting process. (laughs) Uh, Well, let's go ahead and just address that. Bug report systems are confusing. I mean, they're confusing in general. Like most every platform has problems with bug reporting systems, Uh, but Linux uh, even more so in certain cases because it's so different, like fragmented in different places of like the way that one project does it is completely different from the way another project does it. Some people will want to do it emails. Some want to do it with a forum. Some want to do it like an actual bug reporting system. Like there's so many different variables that it just kind of becomes too much. And also, actually, there's some distros that have been changing how they're doing it in the past couple of months, like outright completely. So it just gets even more so. Uh, but bug reports get can't get closed without people sending them. You need, but you also need to have people reading them. So you need to make sure you're using the the correct method that the distro wants to use them. So we, we need to have some kind of approach where we make it as easy as possible to like, for example, why is it that you can't go into your system and ch- just type in bug on your main menu and get a notification of like, here's how you send the bug report. You have here's to, here's an app. Yeah, here's an app. You just, if, if you, why can't you just go into 
the system and say, here's the process and you just type it like, I want to send a bug report or I want to, I have a problem or something like that that allows you to just send that data. But for some reason, they don't really do that. They don't give you that option at all. Like you have to know that a bug report is a thing that even a bug, you had to know the term bug first, really, because if you I have a problem, you can't just type in in like normal language. You have to know all these things and you have to go to the website. You have to go to the bug report section. You have to go to see how they want the policy to set up. Like it, it, there is a problem. Open in a terms. terminal and type in a command, which takes out every <laughs> new person ever opening a bug report. Sure. So, I mean, there's just so many. Ubuntu has a dedicated web page where they talk about reporting bugs. Fedora uses Bugzilla. Pop mm-hmm. OS uses GitHub. A lot of these require you to create sign-ons and register and do all of this work. And really, we make it really difficult for people and and we hear from every developer saying we want more bug reports then why do you make it so difficult and then on top of that let me tell you something the people they have monitoring these bug reports on a lot of these projects make me want to scratch my eyes out like they, they will <laughs> reply to things mm-hmm. like i generally will create a bug report and then i actually provide the solution of how it should work within there and then i get responses like from anaconda that says well this is not a current issue what does that mean it's a current issue. I'm facing it. It's on the latest edition. You close the report with not a current issue. I don't understand. Like, it, And so now what I'm doing yeah. is if I'm somebody who doesn't typically do this, I just feel frustrated and I just stop opening bug reports, which honestly, I think if people were really honest, they probably, uh, most of us don't actually take the time unless it's really frustrating to open a bug report on every issue because we make it so difficult Mm-hmm. to get those bug reports out there. Well, it's interesting that you said that because when you when when I, when I asked the question about like how frequently I wasn't putting people on the spot because I was basically just going to follow up with I don't do it as much as I should. Like f- that's just the honest the honest answer is I I used to do it much much more, but the thing you're talking about you getting frustrated with like how the responses are, that's how I felt like just after a few years, you just kind of give up. I mean, most people don't have the patience to deal with it for years, but I, I did. But the the thing I've like, for example, you talking about like you send out a bug report and they're like, this is not a current issue. What does that mean? Or sometimes they won't even give you like even a response. They'll just say, they'll just mark it as won't fix. And then you just get nothing like, uh, okay, why won't you fix it? Is there an actual reason? Give me a reason. Like there are certain cases where, Yes, the bug reporting system is not ideal, but also when it is being used, there are certain cases where you get responses that are not remotely helpful and because they are expecting the person sending that report to be as the same level of understanding of the system as the people who are reading it. And that is not almost ever the case. Like, and, right. and there's even cases where I've sent messages and they've told me things that don't make any sense at all with any context whatsoever. I've, I've told the story before, but I'm, so I'm not going to go into it like super deep, but there's, there's cases where I've sent in things to KDE and they've told me things like, we're not going to do this because of tradition. Like, that's not a reason. Why would, why would you say tradition is a reason that this is how we've always done it? You've always done it wrong. There you go. Single click, double click. We've talked about that before. But <laughs> so double click, that's the answer. So there's the, that's the thing that we have in these these projects where you have to deal with 
you know, not only is it, it's hard to get the submissions, because like, for example, KDE has Bugzilla and Fabricator. Which one are you supposed to use? I don't know. Does it, it depends on what what you're trying to suggest to them. That kind of thing is is not not necessarily just a picking on KDE. That's just the one I've you know, obviously people know that I'm a huge fan of Plasma and KDE, so I've, I'm involved in that a lot. But there's a, a every project has this kind of thing. Like there's a few that kind of approach it in the right way, but then there's others that just go on off in like ridiculous realms of you have to join a mailing list in order to send the stuff. And then you also have to send the email in an exact format. Otherwise it gets sent back to you and like discarded. Like we need to have some kind of approach where people in these projects are looking we at it. We need an a, app for that. We need an app for that. <laughs> yeah, well, sure. Why not? I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll play devil's advocate here for just a little bit. I, I will Don't tell you this. Wrong. I'll tell you this. I, I find myself, on the other side of this pretty frequently uh, it's not uncommon for me to be walking through a client or, or walking someplace and somebody pulls me and says hey you know the printer back in the blah 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 office uh you know every once in a while uh spits out the wrong thing and just doesn't print right and you know if you can look into that and martha's computer too she you work her, sometimes Sometimes no, they're not drunk. That's just oh. the way they talk. Uh, yeah, you know, there's Martha's computer there. She uh, it uh, it pops up and it has a little window thing and says something about error code. I don't know. Look like gibberish to me. But anyway, error codes up there. Could you look at that too? That there's nothing in there. There's nothing in that that five minute tirade that gives me any mortecum of idea of where I can begin to look to start to solve your problem. And so my answer to those people are pretty simple, right? Send an email to help at altispeed.com. A ticket will get opened. We'll start to investigate. And part of that ticket process is me guiding the user through giving me the information I need as a technician to fix their problem. Okay. So from my perspective, when I'm the guy on the other end of the ticket system, this makes perfect sense because I need him. You tell me what you think is a description of your problem. That is to say that this error that you can't describe, don't have a picture of, don't remember the error code, don't remember what you did to cause the error, don't remember what happened when the error came up. All of that information, which is critical to me actually solving your problem, because you don't think to document that stuff, I will ask you for it one step at a time. And so you say, I have a problem with my printer. Okay. Can you describe the problem with the printer? Can you show me where, you know, can you take screen caps? Can you show me what's happening? And this, of course, applies to any sort of software, right? That user then comes back and says, okay, here's the information. I, we go back and forth until I can finally find something that I can troubleshoot. The problem as it relates to bug reports is, is twofold. First of all, understand that in, 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 in my business scenario, I am kicking it back to the user because the user is paying us to do a job and I need information from them to make that happen. In a bug report scenario, though, to a certain extent, if you're the user of a particular piece of software, I think a lot of users simply bail on the software when the software doesn't live up to expectation. And so the concept yes. that the onus goes back to the user to solve their problem. No, 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 no. That user, I think a lot of times feels like they're just doing a favor to the developer. Hey, by the way, just wanted to point this out that your piece of software, you didn't do your job right. This thing doesn't work. And I think that's the perception of the user. I think the perception of the developer is user is whining about something. I am. I need more information to fix, and so then they they kick it back. Well, can you send log reports? Can you enable debugging? Can you do this? Can you do that or whatever? I really wish they would kick it back in your scenario and say, well, if you want me to solve this, I need this, 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 and this, so that I could actually go and get that information for them. Versus getting things closed on with obscure things like not a current issue. Uh, you know, the, the, I, I think good developers saying, do that. Noah, I get what you're saying, but this is the problem: is that 
there's nothing here in the bug reporting system across Linux that is unified or that any new users or even experienced users really get or understand. And what does happen is exactly what you said. And I see it all the time, all over forums, all over Telegram. The second they get mad with a piece of software or a distro, instead of filing a bug report because it's so obnoxious and they don't want to wait, and they've probably had so many experiences where nothing gets done with it anyways, they distro hop or go to a different piece of software. If you want to stop that and we want to stop having all the fragmentation, I think one place we could focus our attention on that would help, not fix it, but help, is to actually have a universal app for bug reporting that everybody agrees in Linux. This is the the bug reporting system that we use. Here's the information that we need from your system in order for you to file that. And boom, we actually, because developers are asking every time we interview them on the show, what do you need? I wish more people would open bug reports. Great. Every time we open bug reports, they get closed for obscure reasons. So there's got to be a solution here somewhere in the middle. I, 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 I get where you're coming from. At the same time, I feel like to a certain extent, developers have this view or this mentality of they start from the premise that they did everything right. And so if you're experiencing a bug, then you have a problem. And if they have time, they'll lend their time to solve your issue. And I think the perception from the user is that a developer made a mistake in their code. They tried to point that out. Now the developer is now the developer is putting onus back on them. And, and so I, I feel like there is this dichotomy that eventually leads to a developer going, that's too much work. I'm just not going to fix it. And I'm not going to take, I'm not going to take two hours out of my day to explain to this noob why this is not possible or why that can't be fixed because you know of what all elementary this- did to try to resolve that is that I believe if you pay for elementary or do a certain donation, or maybe if you're a patron at a certain tier, you actually get, if you file a bug report, a guarantee that you're going to have them look at it for like an hour, I think and provide you information back on the bug. So now they've created another way to monetize, which is good for them because their time isn't free. And the people who are submitting bug reports have, because they've paid some money, actually have more incentive to stay and hope that the bug report, you see what happens with it and get it fixed versus just hopping to a different distro. I'm okay. Like we were talking about last week, Noah, the difficulty in finding support and being able to pay for support on certain distros, I'm okay with a paywall being part of this too. I mean, you need a free option because a lot of people can't afford it. But if you want to have a paywall where you say, hey, everyone who's paid $30 this year can have a little bit more of an emphasis our developers will have on looking into your bugs, this would be fine as well because I think they're going to get more bug reports. They're going to get more quality bug reports and people aren't going to just switch distros. You know, I tell you what, Ryan, if it were up to me, if I file a bug, I would love it if there was just an option of they just replied with a price. Just give me a price. You know, if something doesn't work and I want that thing to work and you reply and say, hey, it's $700. That's what it's going to cost to pay a developer to fix it. $1,500. That's what it's going to pay to pay a developer to fix it. There are so many times I'd be like, except PayPal, pay, done. Okay, great. Let me know when it's done. You know, I would love for that to happen. And I'd be, and I'm sure you're in the same boat, would love to support that Maybe financially but sure i absolutely well, it depends on what it is though right but but, right. but uh, seriously though it depends on what it is right so let's say for example um there's something that fundamentally enables us to do something on the show that we weren't able to do like the the marking thing that 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 michael got you know those kinds of things depending on what the bug is 
Uh, and depending on what we plan to want to do with it, it would be great to be able to just go, hey, that thing's fixed. I'll pay you the money. And, and then I and then I have that feature because that's that's what will cost us to have professional, uh, you know, uh, uh, broadcasting software anyway. So if we if we invest in the open source part of it, uh, that's great. And then everybody else gets those those changes as well. So I think there are people out there willing to do that. I think it's it comes down to we just need a better system. I agree, and I think that this is a great opportunity for certain distros to monetize certain things. For instance, Pop! OS now has an ability for you to go and donate, and it's a yearly donation that where they take it out in a year's form. So if you donate a dollar, it's like $12 a year. But that's it. There's nothing I'm getting back, right? I know I get to use the fantastic distro, and that should be enough. But let's face it. People want something when they're spending money. What if instead I spent $30, $40, or I spent $50 that year and I got a forum that allowed me to submit ideas and issues and things that I had that had some priority to it, that would make me more likely to probably put some money into that pot than just saying, hey, donate because you just really like the project. It's just a thing. So I think there's a monetization factor to this that could help as well. But even outside the monetization, we need something that's universal to say, when you go to Linux and you run into a problem, new user, type in bug, you'll see an app, you click on it, doesn't matter what distro you're on, that's going to grab a system report. You can go and add in what your steps you were doing before, and then you hit send. And yes, maybe somebody's not going to look at it immediately, but if they get seven reports on the same application having an issue, that probably should trigger the developers then to go say, hey, we need to look into this issue. Seven people have sent us this report through our universal app on this exact same issue. That's my thought. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, I think it's interesting because both the developer's perspective and the user perspective, they're they're kind of like butting heads in a way. Like they, they kind of don't necessarily mesh well. And it takes b both sides to kind of consider that there is a, a problem that needs to be addressed. And I think the problem really that I see is that when the projects need to look at in the sense of the people who are sending those these bug reports, maybe they're ex maybe they're experienced, maybe they're not. But you should always put, respond to them in a way that assumes that they're doing it with the best intentions. And sometimes these responses are just kind of dismissive, and they don't really you know put much effort into doing it because oh, it's just just one person having this problem. It doesn't matter. But I do think that the idea of creating a method where that one person that might not matter in this grand scale of how many people are involved could be kind of like, I get why that would be an issue in terms of like spending time and, and work on this one thing. But the idea of what Ryan and Noah said about the monetary aspect of it and say, hey, I want to pay for you to fix this. I'm totally happy to do that. So how about a method where some people could pay a small amount for just supporting the distro. Other people could pay us a larger amount to saying, hey, we with you pay this amount per month or per year, we we guarantee that you will get a response that is, you know, we spent a certain amount of time, or you just you can guarantee us a certain amount of people will look at this bug or something like that. Like some way to address it in a way that you can guarantee someone will be there to help you. That not necessarily in a customer support service where you can call up or whatever, just a level, maybe even have that as another tier. I don't know, but just a way that provides a a method, a mechanism that gets to that point. But I, I think that the the biggest thing we could do now is the approach to have a universal format for sending bug reports. And now this could be an, a universal app. This could be a universal mechanism. I don't I don't know, but at least in the very minimum, 
we could all just say all distributions should put an entry into their desktop when you go to the main menu, type in bug, type in need help, type in something like that, or all of those things, that they could all find something to do. Because the current situation is you don't know how to do it unless you already know how to do it. So just if nothing else, if we if this if this segment doesn't do anything else, please put something in the main menu that allows us all to have a way to just say, okay, I want to submit a bug. I have an issue. How do I get it addressed? And there would be a solution. If that was done, I think there the, a lot of the problems would make it make it making it easier for people to submit the problem would make it more likely that more people would do it, and therefore you know actually how many people are actually affected. I agree. In this week's gaming section, I know everyone's going to be excited to know we're going to talk about Super Tux Cart. Probably the greatest or most recognized open source game on the planet. Would oh yeah, anybody for disagree sure. Agree with that? I mean, for I sure. think it, I think we could say that. So the beloved Super Tux Cart has a new release candidate out. It's amazing to see this game still to this day getting updates and improvements after all of these years. One of the most important changes for this release is that they ported to a low level Windows creation input input handling code to SDL two, which I don't know what that means at all, but it sounds amazing. Um, because oh, oh, it improves- what it means is that they made it where it's a lower level on SDL2. You're welcome. Oh, thank you. That clears it up completely. <laughs> what is SDL2? Anyways, uh, it's what a it's done- s- software development layer, socket develop s- layers. It's a layer thing. You're welcome. Wow, you're a genius. What it does is it improves gamepad support for hot plugging your gamepad in, improves portability to new platforms, They have modern skins, which are new and different and updated, so the game doesn't look aged when you open it up. They've added multiple camera modes, which allows significantly more flexibility to the user to see different angles and things, because you've all been on that track if you've played the game where you kind of get stuck behind a wall and you can't really see anything going on. Uh, They've adjusted the code for online servers, so you can now use the add-on carts online and additionally switch to a new packaging format for the Android release, which I didn't know that was a thing that it's out there on Android, but that's pretty cool. So is it cross-platform where you can play between the Android and the I think it is, version? as long as you're on the right server and stuff. I think so. I think it is possible to do that. That's but I, I haven't tried that with the Android app, but I'm pretty sure that there was a one of the release notes said something about that. Well, people need to go check out Super Tux Card. It's probably available in your distro of choices software repository. It's open source. It's amazing. It's fun. It's like mm-hmm. Mario Kart, but with Tux and all of the different icons of different distros. It's just, it's a beautiful game. Go check it out. And we will be playing it probably on an upcoming, and the date has been chosen, but I'm not going to release it yet, Game Stream with the DLN crew. It's happening. It's coming in August. Coming soon. A lot of people who are new to Linux get confused anytime we start talking about anything on the CLI, including the directory structure. Now, I remember when I first started with Linux, this is something that was really different to me because in the Windows land, everything lived in C, unless it didn't, in which case it lived in D or E or F, or if we map network drives, we could choose the letter, right? And this was a very simple and basic concept that existed inside of Windows. And I remember coming over to Linux and looking and going, so where is the C drive? Where is the, where does it start? Well, it starts at root. So we have to start there. Slash, that is the, that is the, that is the, 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 the top directory of your drive. And over the next few weeks, we're going to go through all of the subdirectories that live inside of the 
root directory or slash. So the first one we're going to talk about is slash temp or slash TMP. And of course, the slash means root. And inside of root, we have a folder called temp. One of the things I want to point out is that in the Linux system, everything is a file or a folder. And that becomes very powerful to us. And we can use that in a number of different ways. Even devices can be referenced as files or folders. We'll talk about that as uh, this series progresses. So temp stands for temporary. It's where the system stores temporary data. Now, unlike Windows System 32 temp or Windows temp, it's not advisable to jump in there and just wipe all the files out every time you need some spare space. Reason for that is sometimes an application uses that data in slash TMP and deleting those files may crash the system. So you want to be aware of that. Now there's a second temp file in slash var slash temp. We'll talk about slash var in a future episode. And this is where files can live for up to 30 days. So server admins need to be aware of where slash temp is. They need to be aware of what applications are writing to slash temp, when it's appropriate to dump things out of slash temp. Uh, users can use slash temp for bash scripts or, or tools that don't require any sort of permanent storage. Just understand that when you reboot it, it's going to be gone. Our software spotlight this week comes from community member Jitty, and it's called SyncTube. SyncTube is a Node.js app on GitHub that you can run on VPS and allow multiple people to watch and control a video from YouTube in real time. When someone clicks the leader button, they control the video for everyone. This could be a really cool way to socialize with friends while watching, you know, doing a, a, a watching session, like a live watching session that I do without Noah and Ryan, because of course they, they don't understand the, the value of that kind of thing because they just insist on not doing you it. You get invited to your My Little Pony watch parties to do stuff like this. Well, it's not that in particular, but it is anime and they don't they don't get it. It's okay. You can also use it to watch some Destination Linux episodes or some Hardware Addicts episodes or Ask Noah show or This Week in Linux and all that kind of thing. And everybody can enjoy all of it together. And you, I, lo I really love the idea of having this like leader button system. I've seen a few other services doing this kind of thing, but none of them to the degree of actually making it possible where you can control it in real time and also do the switch between leader things. I, I've never seen that before and that sounds really cool. So I did try it out also and it's, it seems pretty smooth. Uh, I, did, I just used the demo, but it's a, it's a pretty cool system. So if you're interested in checking it out, it's SyncTube and we'll have a link to it in the show notes. This sounds really cool, but I got a question that Noah and I have been asked talking about in Element um, off air. Uh, are you, when you're doing your watch parties that you don't invite me and Noah to, do you have like a pajama theme? that you go with with the anime do you like wear my little pony onesies and then you all sit around and no, watch it or how does well, that work one it's not my little pony and two uh yes pajamas of course you have to wear pajamas to enjoy the watch party uh that's just so a that's why he thing. hasn't invited us no he wears pajamas to answer your question <laughs> earlier in the well week. i don't i don't wear pajamas I, so that wouldn't work for me i wouldn't attend right so yeah thanks for, for sure. not inviting us yeah you're welcome you're welcome so a huge thank you to each and every one of you for watching or listening to Destination Linux and a special shout out to all of our patrons that joined us here today. I love your faces. You too can become a patron and become a part of the show. You can join us for uh, the after show that we have each week after Destination Linux is recorded live. And you also, if you can't join, you can watch the unedited version of the show where there's so much more trolling of Michael going on behind the scenes. You're missing out if you're not a patron. So consider becoming one right now so that you don't miss out on those great cracks that you later can repeat to him on Telegram. 
And actually, you should definitely become a patron because it's an awesome time. And it, you can give trolls to Ryan and Noah in the post show, not me. That's not really that's not how that works. But uh, you could definitely do it with Ryan and Noah. It's fantastic. I, I encourage that. You can also what I encourage is to get some swag from the DLN store. You can pick up. You can show your love and for open source and DL by picking up some net, Destination Linux Network swag. We have T-shirts, hoodies, mugs, and so much more, and even more coming soon. In addition, we just launched a new pseudo show shirt so if you haven't checked out the pseudo show you need to do that but also if you're a fan of the pseudo show check out the pseudo show shirt it is fantastic don't be an airhead and join the dln community right now if you don't know what you're missing out so join the dln discourse forum it's the cat's meow excuse me cat's pajamas want to talk in real time don't be a wallflower join the dln telegram group and finally if you're itching to get your game on and you don't have a copy on right just join the dln discord server <laughs> copy. He read cow as copy on right. That's brilliant. What cow stands for. Don't, don't have a cow, man. You've never don't heard have a cow. Don't have a cow. Don't have copy a copy on, on right. right. Oh my gosh, you are such a nerd. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want some more content from us, we or anyone else a part of the Destination Linux Network, they go to the DLN website at destinationlinux.network. You can find all sorts of open source goodness to check out. We have so many shows, also YouTube channels. Check it all out. Fantastic stuff at destinationlinux.network. Also check out the pseudo show with Eric and Brandon. The pseudo show covers topics ranging from enterprise open source to cloud management. We also have a whole new chat on the deal and extend with Wendy and Matt, along with Nate and his almost unhealthy obsession with OpenSUSE. So make sure to check that out. Thanks for watching this episode of Destination Linux. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you have a great week. And remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Can you show us some of the pajamas you're wearing during your watch parties? Yeah. Do they have cats on them? <laughs> Don't have a cow, man. All right, patrons, <laughs> you can turn on your cameras, turn on your microphones. <laughs>